This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Ornstein, and I'm here today with Eric Mill. Hey, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Good. So I think you are most famous, if I had to guess, for isitchristmas.com. Uh, I mean, from ThoughtBot's perspective, very certainly, because uh, I created it while I was an employee here talking in our campfire. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's fun to work on every year, for sure. Um, do, you, do you want me to say what it is? I do, yeah. All right, well, it is. Uh, it tells you if it's Christmas or not, is the short version. Um, I edited it by hand for the first maybe five or six months, but uh, it actually does calculate it on the server and then calculate it client side and use that and fall, falls back to the server if you don't have JavaScript enabled. So okay. it is high precision Christmas detection. Down to the millisecond. That's right. It's down to the millisecond. Um, is that it's the precision of JavaScript. The, the last couple of years, uh, I sort of took advantage of its irrational traffic. Uh, well, before I say that, like I put it up uh, in 2007 when I was working at ThoughtBot to just jokingly respond to a ThoughtBot coworker's question in chat of whether it was Christmas. Yeah. So I just built the website for him and then didn't think anything of it and put a Google Analytics snippet on it a few days later and then just noticed people were streaming in. And uh, they just haven't really stopped coming. <laughs> and then I think with the rise of social media, uh, I've sort of that's lifted my boat there. And so the traffic has doubled most years of the last year was was not a doubling but most of the years it's doubled yeah and you've also you've rolled out some fun stuff on there too <laughs> uh yeah so a couple of years ago i decided to really just uh, exploit my traffic uh and instead of monetizing it just make it so that everybody connected to a WebSocket server when they showed up and it turns the mouse cursor into the flag of your country and then you can uh see everybody else's mouse flag things moving around in real time so it's a little ridiculous shared presence server with a extra Easter egg chat room in the developer console if you manage to figure that out. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have big plans for this year? Uh, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do this year. It would actually be fun to do a physical event where it's being broadcast on the side of a building or something. Last year, I actually took snapshots of everybody's XY coordinates every five seconds uh, on all of my different servers, at least it tried to. Uh, I think it dropped some data, but it picked up about five and a half gigabytes of JSON of XY coordinates. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about making a little viewer to like replay what happened and kind of tour through that in time. And I thought maybe that might drive some inspiration. Then I want to mess around with WebRTC. I don't know if you or anybody at ThoughtBot has messed around with that yet, but I'm really excited about that particular technology. Yeah, I, I like how you describe the traffic as an indefensible amount. Yeah, there's really no way I can justify uh, this traffic. Yeah, looks like 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 a million page views last December. I think that's right. Yeah, and this for a one word site. For for a one word site, that's right. And you know, middle of the summer, fifteen thousand a day sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it loads real fast. Well, you know, I uh, I definitely work hard at optimizing my I don't really make a lot of effort <laughs> except during Christmas I mean I put I probably put a thousand dollars into infrastructure mm-hmm. last year for those that that week two week period mm-hmm. but for the most part it just runs on a little box alongside all my other stuff yeah I love that in the world there are people that are willing to do things like this that have <laughs> sort of no point but are just kind of like fun little whimsical things that happened yeah, I mean, I don't know. Somebody offered me uh, $1,500 to buy the domain in 2008. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a tough call, but actually even just like 
So that first year, I made it so that if you um, visited it, it actually translated it into your language using your IP address. Hmm. And I spent maybe eight hours making like a dictionary, mapping keys of country codes to, you know, figuring out the language of that country, then figuring out yes or no in that language. And then I, I got to watch people sort of figure that out together. Like, no one person can see it, but if you talk about it on forums with people, mm. they all kind of figure it out. Yeah. And that just, like, was such an enjoyable experience for me that when somebody offered to sell it for what at the time, as a, you know, poor uh, young 20-something, felt like a good bit of money, I was, it was not enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. So uh, what was your thought about Tom like? Thoughtbot was a fantastic time for me. Um, I don't know if I've ever really had the opportunity to tell Thoughtbot in like emotive terms uh, how how good that time was and how much it meant to me. But that was totally my formative years as a developer. When I talk when I tell people about it now, mm-hmm. I tell people that um, I jumped onto Thoughtbot in 2006 as as I think their second uh, full time Ruby and Rails person. Oh wow! I didn't realize that you were that early. Yeah, it was uh, July of 2006. Okay. And uh, I, you know, I took a big pay cut to do it uh, and to, to join, um, you know, a, what the physical environment is, was nothing at all like what you're used to now. It's like above a old depressing mattress store in East Cambridge. Uh-huh. And I, I just loved it. I had just come from a, uh, you know, everybody's first job out of college, or at least a lot of people's, is, is pretty terrible. You really don't have any choice or bargaining power. But I worked for an anti-spyware firm that was really mediocre uh, and I really didn't have much in the way of skilled labor. And I just sort of fell in love with Ruby and Rails, uh, reading through Wise book and DHH's book kind of at the same time, and just made it my mission to find a job that would do that. And ThoughtBot uh, worked out, and I hopped over, and I just felt for the first time like, wow, I, I like going to work in the morning. Hmm. Like, wow, I, I like my coworkers. I, I don't mind hanging out with them all the time. Like, <laughs> Uh, and and how I describe it to people now is basically how I sort of supercharged myself as a competent developer. After two years at ThoughtBot, well, I, I did a brief stint at Blue State Digital, but then after that, I did about four months of freelance work and just was on my own through a pretty stressful time, actually. But I did good work and commanded good rates to dig myself out of that hole, and mm-hmm. and I I felt very strongly that it was the competency and experience I got at ThoughtBot that let me do that. So. I feel very positively about it. Cool. That's great to hear. So uh, I, I wish everyone that I interviewed blogged as much as you do. Oh, that's funny because I am constantly castigating myself for not blogging enough. Oh, no. You should, you should feel <laughs> good. I mean, like, you're, you seem like you're like at least monthly for, for years, it looks like. Uh, yeah, well, that's true. I did manage. I think at my lowest, it was once a month. I'm trying to do more than that. But yeah, one of the things that I think I've, I've uh, had to adjust to the sad realization is that I really don't have time to do everything and to keep mm-hmm. all like skills at every possible thing I want to do sharp. I don't have time to fit in becoming a good graphic designer or animator, which I would really love to do, mm-hmm. uh, or to make music. But at the very least, I really try to keep my writing skills from atrophying entirely. Mm-hmm. And I think actually that that has been a tremendous help for me professionally. And so blogging is a way to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. What made you pick that? Like, What drives you to write? Uh, I enjoy it. I mean, I'm acceptable at it. And also, there's something, I mean, I don't call this irrational or indefensible, but it is, especially coming from an engineering background, sometimes it's strange to see somebody's writing, somebody's blog post, make a really tangible impact in the world Mm. and Mm -hmm. sometimes change their lives 
in a positive way. You know, um, this, this last year I've been particularly motivated sort of post-Snowden and a couple of the blog posts, there was one uh, about the sort of door to the surveillance court and then there was another one that was a SSL tutorial. You know, both of those you know, got sort of an initial burst of attention but also very much changed how people saw me, at least some people, like en- enough of a, a meaningful set of people. And there's a thing, and maybe you've experienced this in your life too, that when people... All you have to do is get people to start associating you with a term for you to be an expert in that in their brain, right? Like you just have to come to mind. Yep. And that, you know, blogging, especially if you, you put a little heart into it, mm-hmm. is, is a pretty good way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. I've brought that up a handful of times on here. Of it's, it's really just a, you, and you know, it's just literally associating your name with that thing. And then you are, you are the expert. Yep. Just because you come to mind first. Yeah. And it, it also changes, I mean, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Luigi Martinez, has started a, a little newsletter for himself called the Civic Hacking Weekly, hmm. and he's pretty experienced in that. And he's just so he just started a newsletter to do it. And he, one of the side of it's it's not just about the writing. Like once you once you put yourself out there that way, now all of a sudden people are sending you things that they want to appear in that thing. Like mm-hmm. and then you've actually you've sort of uh, self fulfilled your way into this prophecy of being a, uh, on top of the pulse of, of something that's happening. And that's another nice thing about writing. Yeah, absolutely. You had an interesting, interesting post about 2,000-year goals on there or, or things to focus on. Yeah, so that was my initial reactions, uh, actually. Basically, after Snowden released a lot of his leaked documents and people started reporting on it, you know, there's, I'm not alone, obviously, in feeling like it was an attack on the internet. And the thing is, and I, this is just going to be very much in my, uh, my personal uh, capacity here, but, you know, I, I've talked a lot over the last year about, like, what the internet is and, and what it should be. And I, I, have, um, I have a real kind of institutionalist bent sometimes compared to a lot of my people in, in the advocacy and open government space. Like, I think that I probably give a lot more benefit of the doubt to institutions and politicians and people that I come across, then, then maybe I should sometimes, but I think also more than sometimes that's correct. But I, I have this like very instinctive kind of empathic thing that makes me, I don't know, it's, it often makes me feel like reflexively a little middle of the road in a way that sometimes makes me uncomfortable. And for example, when Aaron Swartz uh, killed himself, that was another thing that really brought out this feeling of like, well, man, I don't, like, I'm just, like, making some search engines here and stuff. Like, am I truly capable of doing anything radical at all? And so, and for example, like, I have different feelings and more, much more complicated feelings about, like, WikiLeaks and Chelsea Manning than I do about Snowden. And the reason for that is because I, I think, honestly, when I think about, like, what is important to me and what inspires me the most, like, the Internet means something to me that's more than just like the nations that are a part of it and the people that are a part of it now. It reminds me of how I feel when I read books that take place, you know, thousands of years in, in the future and like the, the network that people have created to just like have basic communications and allow humanity to expand like and expand everyone's horizons and, and sort of broaden our, our collective imagination. Like that's something to me, especially with how, how flawed but reasonably successfully we've made this decentralized network mm-hmm. Um, like it's something that's very precious and ahistorical. And when I feel that it's attacked, uh, when I feel that when people have started to to subjugate the long term vision of the internet to to short term fears, yeah. I get I get very upset. Yeah, me too. It feels like maybe the one of the most important things we've ever done, 
And so if you're going after this thing, it's like, don't just don't mess this up. This can be like the, one of like the most important creations of humanity. I agree. I think it's the I think it is the, the most impressive thing that humanity's pulled off yet. And it actually is interesting to me because a lot of the science fiction of the late 20th century really focused on things that were physically different. Like you, the future was supposed to look very different. Hmm. There's supposed to be flying stuff. Hmm. Things are shinier. There's more metal. Actually, we just spent like 30 years building an invisible network so we could talk to more people and hear from more people. And I don't think that's what people expected. Yeah, that's such an interesting observation. And like you don't see them predicting that there would be like whole classes of jobs that all they do is build more invisible stuff. Uh-huh. Like I can't point you to a single thing I've done professionally. Like, like <laughs> I can like I could print it all out and you know, like I could right. create a physical representation, but it's it's true representation will will never be visible. I had a brief moment before that sort of became too normal for me to notice in my freshman year of college mm-hmm. when I was I felt extremely strange about typing keywords into Notepad on my Windows desktop at the time and emailing those to professors and being graded. It felt like I, it felt like I was being allowed to fill out puzzle books from my childhood, but then somehow that's like as good as somebody writing an essay or designing a bridge. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. That is weird. So I, we got into this thing because of these this two thousand year problems. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, blog post, but I think it's worth. Ta- I mean, bringing up what, what you said. So you, you said you know your your point was, I want to work on what's happening in the next two thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so I love what you, this is a great sentence. Just about anything with a capitalized name along the way from a sports team to a nation doesn't really matter on that scale. That's a great sentence. Um, yeah, thanks. I'm, I mean, yeah, I, I, 2000 years ago, barely any of the capital names that we had, uh, are still around. I mean, we talk about them, but they're not around. Mm -hmm. So that's, that to me, like is a, is just a shorthand for like how to remind myself about what's important. Yeah. You know, the internet is capitalized. But I think that's the, that's the thing that could make the next 2,000 years. That's, that's true. And actually, I've, I've become of the mind that it should probably be decapitalized, mm. uh, which some style guides have started doing too. Yeah, yeah. So you, you listed in there like the three things that you think you could comfortably mm-hmm. devote your life to. One was neuroscience, uh, one was space exploration, and the other was individual empowerment. Yeah, which is a little bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. But yeah, those, those neuroscience, I mean, we just devoted uh, what, like a kabillion dollars in some big presidential initiative mm-hmm. uh, last year to deciding how to map out the brain. Like, we're, we're not even close to knowing how the hell it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the EEGs you can buy tell you if you're focused or not, and that's like kind of about all you can do outside of the lab. And even in the labs, they're not much further. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like another invisible thing, right? Yeah, it's like point to the part of the brain that feels love. And you're like, well, like we can kind of do a little bit of that. And yet it is the lens through which all experience and knowledge is derived. <laughs> like it's, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's likely that I'll be getting into that science, but I do, I do have an EEG on the way. I pre-ordered a Muse. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try to hook that up to a Raspberry Pi while I'm sleeping and just try to like stream all the analog data through a web socket. Maybe I'll do something so we can watch like is eric dreaming.com uh i might pick a different domain than that but yeah. very similar yeah yeah Interesting. yeah uh space exploration sure gotcha so what is individual empowerment well that's a way of me justifying like why i work at the sunlight foundation mm-hmm. and at the time and sort of i mean i i really just don't think people realize how much individual power that they have and this is a, this is actually a pretty dangerous kind of sentiment for a privileged white male software developer like me to talk about. And I, I do want to be pretty nuanced about it. But I, I just feel like institutions pretend to have all the power and get a lot of deference in this world. And 
And when I say institutions, I don't just mean like things that have budgets and money, but uh, all the things that socialize us to, you know, have different habits and, and like different things and for, to, for these types of people not to be assertive or whatever, like, and it drives me crazy. And so if I'm going to, if I'm going to work on anything, uh, I'd prefer it to be distributing power a little bit more, more widely. Hmm. I mean, for, you know, base, most basic level, just like teaching other people how computers and the web work is a particular passion of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really would be happy if the the salaries of my field were substantially lower but included a lot more people. Mm-hmm. I think that would be probably pretty good for the world. Hmm. Um, I, why, why are the salaries lower? I, I get why you want more, would want more people. I mean, well, I guess I mean even if it has to come at the cost mm. of increased supply, meaning lower demand. Gotcha. Like I'm, I'm speaking in casual terms here because I don't know how economies work, uh, <laughs> but that's just something I'm prepared to accept for inclusivity. Sure. Huh. It, it is interesting. Like I feel a little bit like if the internet is this, this super powerful thing, which we have sort of, we seem to agree it is, then there's almost this new priesthood of people that are able to make more of it and extend it and you know build things on top of it. And that knowledge lets you tap into that superpower. That's right. And I mean, that's the, the sad thing is that it's the easiest thing to learn on the internet is, is how to make more of it. The, because all the people making it, like there's just an excess of people who love talking and sharing resources. Mm-hmm. Of all the science and engineering disciplines you could pick, the one that you could bootstrap yourself on is most easily web development, I think, mm. above anything else. Mm. But yet that's the thing that seems the most like magic to people. And you know, honestly, I do think that factors into some of the cultural backlash online now against the tech sphere generally. You're starting to see a lot more people writing and talking about uh, – w- well, let me put it another way. When stuff like Soylent comes up, for example, mm-hmm. what would have just gotten some you know, fun laughter in the early 2000s now actually has a lot of anger behind it and starts reminding people of the other things that the tech world has started to lay out for them that they don't feel like they have a sense of control over. Hmm. I think people are, are rightly concerned that they're being manipulated by distant, unaccountable institutions hmm. uh, that you know, in a lot of ways resemble like how people feel about governments. And I don't think it's a totally unjustified way to feel given the current state of things. I just wish it were easier for people to see the way out. Hmm. Which is what? Which is not to go become a professional software developer, but to understand the mechanics of, of how this power is being exercised over you. I mean, I, I tell people to go teach themselves some HTML or just take a class and just like how the web actually works. Like what happens when you go and type a URL into your browser? Mm-hmm. I've given some workshops on like, here is just demystifying an API. Like here's how URLs work. See those ampersands? It's, you, can, you can get that. Like it's not, you know, this is how it's broken out. And I, I honestly believe that that changes people's reaction to technology generally and hmm. gives them the tools to sort of intuit a little bit like where the cracks are mm. and where they're just like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, there's, some, there's something in people's brains that makes them want to ask their kid to help, you know, help them through some dialogue box instead of just clicking through a couple of things to see what works. Right. And it's not programming ability that does that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's some sort of comfort and belief in yourself. That's interesting. It, it, so it used to be, about like dozens of years ago, what, that they, there was a belief that you shouldn't teach, try to teach uh, deaf people sign. Like you should just try to have them speak, I believe it was, even though they, they can't hear what they're saying and, they, and, they have to, and like read lips and speak. No, wait, was that what it was? No, I think, uh, no, sorry. I think, so there was a period where they were trying to just not bothering to teach deaf people language at all. And it turned out that language is like this operating system for the brain. 
And people that had never learned any language had trouble with like really, really rudimentary tasks. Like you basically couldn't get your brain to understand higher level things without some language, even the language that you hear in your own head, because you were basically lacking the operating system for the brain. And so you were, people were crippled by this. And then when they started teaching deaf people sign, in particular, they, it became clear that like, you know, there's no, there's no mental block to this. It was just they hadn't, you need that language there to be able to understand things. And I see like parallels between this and what you're talking about with if you understand a little bit of how literal operating systems work and servers work and the internet works, then you sort of start to have this like framework for understanding that you can build higher level understanding on top of. I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I have a friend, there's a, a friend of mine, David Zvenich, actually, I'll just, I'll mention his name, who's becoming uh, one of my role models. He's a, he's a lawyer in D.C., um, works with the D.C. legislature, the D.C. council. Mm-hmm. Um, he's their chief lawyer, actually. And, and he's had a, a pretty accomplished legal career and has been doing this for, for a long time. He's, he's extremely good at it. But also, uh, you know, got just a little bit invested in coding last year and learning to program and is, goes toe-to-toe with a lot of people who, you know, come in for interviews now at, for actual jobs. Mm. And, and, you know, part of that, I think, is just like self-confidence. A little bit was... Actually, you know, having even just a tiny bit of engineering introduction earlier in life um, and just like getting the sense of breaking large problems down into small ones, mm-hmm. that that's kind of really the magic skill underlying it all. Yeah. I think that helps a lot. Yeah, I think it's almost just shifting your thinking out of this idea that this is a magic box that you can't understand. Right. Like if you approach it from that angle, it's like, well, it's it's too com- like I, I can't understand this, and therefore I I sort of won't hope to and won't try to start building a mental map of what's going on. Right. And I think that's the people that you know asked for help with the dialogue box is they've decided like you know I'm too you know something too old too not smart too something for to, to pick up this or understand what's going on here even at a basic level, and you sort of have this guaranteed incompetence. If you sort of take that as your basic position, whereas if you think, oh, you know, I, no, I can learn this. I can like at least get the gist of what's going on and, and, and have an idea. Then I think you are equipped to start understanding things. Right. I, I agree. And actually and maybe sort of at the same time, it's it's very easy, especially for people in our position to sort of forget what it's like to have already like built on top of a whole bunch of abstractions. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I taught a few 10 or 11 year olds HTML um, a couple a few years ago, um, just as a little volunteer program. And uh, one of the things that I was kind of taken aback by is we were just working in Notepad, just hand typing out some HTML. And that was maybe half the hard part. The other half of the hard part was actually like them understanding how a text editor works mm-hmm. and and just like what happens when you're moving your cursor around from line to line, lines of different lengths and being able to predict what's going to happen. Like yep. there's actually an, a, a model there that you're manipulating in your head to predict that, For that sure. you forget about years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did a, a rails girls workshop. I think it was called rails girls. Yeah. And it was basically teaching rails to women over a weekend. And I remember being struck by someone called me aside and, and like asked like step one of the tutorials, like, do I need to type this dollar sign? And there was a dollar sign indicating like you're at a bash prompt kind of thing. Right. And I was like, that is such a completely reasonable question <laughs> that I would never have thought someone would ask because I've just seen that so many times. That convention is completely natural and burned into my head. You chunked it away. Yeah. And I was just like, I was just had this moment of clarity. Like, yeah, that is, that is a totally reasonable question. I, 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 but I, would, I never would have seen it coming. Right. It's, in a way, it's kind of awesome, right? Like it lets us, I, I think that's kind of a beautiful thing because it lets us think about these higher level thoughts. I, yeah. I, also, I mean, that one in particular kind of makes you 
makes you realize like, ah, Den- Dennis Ritchie and, oh man, the other guy who's Rob not Dennis Pike? Ritchie. Rob Pike. Um, anyway, I should be ashamed of myself. But like, yeah, they actually just had to like make a whole bunch of abstractions from whole cloth that we take for granted. Yeah. So you, meant, you touched on earlier that you uh, did some work for the Sunlight Foundation. Well, yeah, I worked for them for, for five years. So after Thoughtbot, I did a, a few months working at a little consultancy called Blue State Digital, just on the Obama 2008 campaign, who they worked for. Then I did a few months of freelance work. Uh, and then I moved to D.C. to join the Sunlight Foundation. And I worked there for about five and a third years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, an absolutely terrific time. And it took, it took a long time for me to be wrested away from, from the Sunlight Foundation because they do such high-impact work hmm. and are such a joy to work with. Can you talk about that? Like what yeah, they do absolutely. What I'm doing? sorry. That's okay. So, yeah, so the, the Sunlight Foundation, and again, I don't work there. This is my personal opinion. But they're a, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and they advocate for open government. Like what should government be in the Internet era? Hmm. Um, so that is policy work that's saying actually it's it's not enough for you to put out a pdf that has a table in it put out a spreadsheet that has a that's a total sea change for how people actually can make use of that Mm -hmm. uh they're like okay you know build apis when you work on things release them in the open um that i mean so that's some of the more technical they do a mix of things they do policy work for example they convince the house and senate to publish their voting uh, online in XML instead of just an HTML page. Mm-hmm. Um, pushed for the 72-hour rule in the House. Where in the House, it takes they have to wait three legislative days before they can vote on a bill to give there to be time for people to read it and for society to respond and so forth. Yeah. Then they also do reporting, uh, journalism, based on a lot of influence data and, in, and influence work. So taking advantage of the fact that Compared to a lot of other countries, the, the United States has a pretty amazing amount of data around how money travels in politics mm. and using that to affect change. And then a very expansive technical team uh, that I think is what really sets Sunlight apart. So Sunlight is about 50 people. I'm just going to talk about the size when I, and their makeup when I left. Mm-hmm. Um, about 50 people and about 15 or 16 of them are developers or designers, maybe eight, maybe even 18. So it's just tremendously... This is like a huge source of might to actually build infrastructure. And that is what I appreciated when I was there. So I was on their tech team and I worked on infrastructure. So I built um, an API around the work of Congress um, that gets pretty, pretty good use. Um, I built a search engine called Scout that federated information from all different branches of government and state government and just kind of fed them together so you could get some, make some RSS feeds and get emails about them and just actually search them. And I made a, an Android app called Congress that, that was pretty all right as well. Um, so because what I really appreciated about them is that unlike all the other advocacy groups uh, that work on transparency, they actually they have to ship things like that sort of grounds you, I feel like when you're and gives you credibility, um, especially your know, criticism is tough to give in D.C. to, to the government. And mm. uh, a lot, it's very it can be very easy to be taken in bad faith. If you don't have a lot of credibility or good relationships or both, mm-hmm. and Sunlight has a lot of credibility, and a big part of that is that they lead by example, and they're capable of doing that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about them for a while. I, I really like my time there, and uh, I, I think they're going to continue to be a really good force for projecting what, what should the relationship be between the governed and the government in the age of the internet, because it, it should look very different than it has been. Yeah, and they generally push for openness right that's the sort of the yeah oh yeah open government open data and everything they do is open source yeah awesome uh can you talk a little bit about 18f where you are now 
Sure. So I joined a couple of months ago. Um, it's a government agency. It's a team inside of the government, a government agency called uh, the General Services Administration. So important for me to give a caveat here mm-hmm. that I'm speaking very per- in my personal capacity only. Um, and, uh, you know, you should should definitely go to 18F's website and Twitter and go learn about them in its official capacity. But it's uh, just publicly launched a few months ago, and uh, it's a team of people, uh, developers and designers, some, a few policy and project manager type people uh, building technology for the rest of the government. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I joined because I thought it was a, a pretty good opportunity to affect uh, some good change and make a good impact and is, is consonant with my views around empowerment and, uh, and open government. Gotcha. So, so is this a little bit like sunlight inside the government? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the staff page for 18F and then you go and uh, look at people's names, you'll find there's, there's several people from the Sunlight Foundation who are there. Yeah, I definitely don't have any concerns about open government there. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's cool to see some of that change happening inside. I mean, yeah, I definitely, I think it's an exciting time to be there for sure. Cool. Awesome. Has there been anything that uh, we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Um, I don't know. Um, you, you seem to do pretty good, uh, pretty good research on me. So I don't know if you have any, anything well, else there. Well, uh, you practice what you preach in terms of openness. So it wasn't uh, super hard to find some of this stuff out. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's maybe I should have prepared a little better, but no, no I don't know. I see you have like a wrist brace on. Are you having the RSI issues, or do you sprain something? No, my goodness, no. Uh, thank God. I just bought a bike because of uh, where 18F is in relation to me. So I've been biking a lot, mm-hmm. and I, I hit a pothole in DC mm-hmm. and uh, went over my handlebars. It's uh, it's fortunately not broken. It's a sprain. That's good. But uh, what kind of bike? Uh, it's a hybrid bike. Um, it's actually the first time I've dropped more than like 50 bucks on a bike in my life. Mm-hmm. But a number of friends who feel very strongly about bikes, they belong to bike co-ops, they talk about their bikes a lot, all jointly urged me to maybe drop a little more than that on a bike this time. Yeah. And I, actually, I'm very happy I did. It's, it's great. Awesome. Cool. Well, watch out for those potholes in the future. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Eric, it's been awesome talking to you. Oh, yeah, you too, man. I really appreciate you uh, swinging by. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to like plug or like have people like try to get in touch with you or anything like that? Uh, okay. Well, I have one volunteer project uh, that I've been managing. Uh, something I actually kicked off at Sunlight that um, I've been just managing on my personal capacity now. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the sort of the, the overall project generally is uh, it's called the United States Project, which is github.com slash United States. It's got a little custom domain of its own too, um, the United States.io. But uh, there's a project I've been doing around uh, just scraping uh, the websites of offices of inspector general around the federal government. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are basically independent watchdogs inside of each agency that look for fraud and abuse, sue people, uh, try to call out when the government is being corrupt. They do a prolific amount of work and they just publish their reports to their 70 different websites in different formats, barely any of RSS feeds. Hmm. And they're just hanging around there. And so they're not searchable unless you pay lots of money to some private company that's maybe already written these scrapers in the first place. So I've been doing a bunch of open source public domain scrapers. And uh, I've had some volunteers helping me out. So that's uh, github.com slash United States slash inspectors dash general. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you feel like doing a little scraper in your side time, it brings stuff out into the light and cool. makes you feel good. Looks like a Python project. 
It, it is, in fact, a Python project, okay. uh, which I don't know if that's a good match for this audience, but no. I encourage all of you to be polyglots and do work in all the good languages. Absolutely. It might be a good way to get a little extra Python skills in there. Exactly. Awesome. Cool. Uh, well, uh, that's it. So let's wrap it up. So today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giant robots slash 110. Thanks so much for listening. 